Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. This episode of Telltales was published on January 31st, 2024. Today, we're exploring Apple's controversial App Store fees and the potential impact of developer backlash on its entry into the AR VR space. Among other things, we'll also discuss Alphabet's recent earnings report and the challenges Tesla's board faces with their CEO compensation plan. But before we get into all that, Hunt's going to kick us off with a review of the energy and U.S. government spending exhibits from the memo. We definitely recommend having the memo in front of you while you listen, so go to telltales.us and get the latest version. And now, on to the episode. Okay. Exhibit C and oil. The Saudis made an announcement yesterday. Their original goal had been to continue to work on some of their offshore fields uh, to bring their production capacity up to 13 from 12. They're currently producing just under nine at the direction of the uh, energy ministry. They were told to stop work on trying to go to 13 million barrels a day, that 12 is plenty. I uh, think that fits in with their continuing to manage their own production and Russia's production, other OPEC members who continue to try to shoot for an $80 grant price. Um, I think I mentioned last Wednesday, the EOG CEO said, projected not only his own production, EOG's production in 24, he said, would be flat, but the U.S. production would not go up more than about, I think it's running 13 or so. I think he said it wouldn't go up by more than 400,000 barrels rather than the significant increase that happened in 23. The problem with the oil price, if there's going to be a problem, is in supply, not demand. And hopefully this will all work out. Gas, Exhibit B, we're missing the cold weather. The freeze-offs, which had reduced production down to around 90 piece a day, pretty well cured now. So the latest production numbers, which are turned out daily based on pipeline records back at 104. Again, the problem is supply. The good news is that power demand has been going up by about two bees a day which is good. It had been pretty flat until 22. That equalizes the amount that LNG feed gas has been going up. The other bad news is the Biden administration instructed the Department of Energy executive order to <clears throat> undertake a study from now to November on whether or not additional LNG exports should be permitted or new project should be permitted. I don't think that has any impact on 
increase in LNG feed gas this year or next year, but it will have an impact when we get out four or five years from now. But we don't know whether or not the Biden administration will be in office, and we don't know that they may have enormous pressure on them to relax us, both internal pressure from U.S. producing states. The senator from Louisiana, John Kennedy, has said if this executive order persists, he's, he's going to put a hold on any appointments made in the Department of Energy and Department of State. He's taking a strong position. So I think we're just, as a gas producer, are just going to have to live with this until the election, and we'll see what happens after the election. No real comment on Exhibit A. Clearly, spending has to level off. They are going to try to finish all 12 appropriation bills. If they don't, the deal that was made to extend the debt ceiling uh, last May calls for 24 fiscal 24 spending being 1% under fiscal 23, and that would curtail defense spending. So watching them deal with that over the next couple of weeks will be pretty informative. The very conservative House members want to just go to a 1% cut. They're not concerned with the impact that that has on the defense budget, but we'll see what happens. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So, if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. This is not an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. And now, back to the show. I don't think for this Wednesday... We have any particular agenda. Mike and I talk every morning for about 20 minutes, 8.30 my time, 5.30 his time. I think, I think what we want to do is just starting with page one, get through as many pages as we can, just looking for new relevant news on these companies. And page one, don't think there's too much Apple news, but I'm going to defer to Mike and Jason. I think there's obviously Alphabet reported earnings yesterday and Tesla. I mean, there's some really interesting Tesla news, but let's let's cover Apple first. And anything of note there, Mike or Jason? Well, the first thing I'd say is that Jason and I said that we could probably spend the entire 30 minutes on the first page. And Jason said we could probably spend the entire 30 minutes on Apple. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we'll try to save some time for Tesla at least. But yeah, what, J- Jason, why don't you run us through the what's happening with Apple? And this is sort of an interesting dynamic because Jason started his career as a software developer and has some historical context that I think is relevant here. Yeah, and, and its relevance is to Apple's decision um, with the App Store fees and how they're going to abide by the the European Union, European Union's. Uh, order to open up their app store and now their new plan to charge 50 cents per app download per year. 
um, if you if you load the app outside of their app store. <clears throat> so when I started my career, it was in software engineering, um, building both consumer apps and then interesting applications for the government. Um, at that time, Steve Ballmer was running Microsoft, and Microsoft was kind of the king, and they dictated the rules. Uh, and the engineering community really didn't want to develop apps for the Microsoft suite. And they didn't want to use the tools and the languages that Microsoft um, was using at the time. And starting to see a lot of the same kind of behaviors with Apple now. They're alienating a lot of the, the engineering community. You have very outspoken CEOs at Spotify and Epic um, saying they don't want to develop, they don't want to play in, in the app, Apple App Store. Um, and engineers don't want to have 30% of the revenue taken on their apps. Um, so the result back uh, 15 years ago or so was uh, the shift to mobile. Engineers did not want to build mobile apps for Microsoft products. Um, and you can say that, you know, Apple, Apple really uh, ran circles around them with the iPhone versus uh, Microsoft's uh, mobile operating system. But, but at the end of the day, there were no apps on the Microsoft operating system. So there's kind of two shifts happening today. It's AI and, and AR VR shift with uh, Apple's Vision Pro. And you're starting to see the same kind of dynamics play out where they release the Vision Pro and then you have companies like Netflix saying they're not going to build an app to watch Netflix within the Vision Pro. And maybe the best use case for a Vision Pro today is to watch TV and movies on a, on a giant movie screen that's virtual in your living room. So my worry is, is they're going to miss out on whatever's next because engineers won't want to develop products for the Apple ecosystem just because the, the rules that Apple's putting in place now and then the, the revenue take they're demanding. I, I'd add that it's really, in, the Vision Pro is really what's unearthing a lot of this because today there's so many users on the iPhone that every developer has to, whether they like to or not, they, they have to release apps on the iPhone. The Vision Pro is a new platform. They're not bringing any users. So there's no reason financially for them to develop an app early, right. not until and, there are users there. And 20 years ago, everyone had a, a Windows PC and you had to develop a, a Windows desktop application. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that begs the question is what will the next platform be? And I think this AR VR thing is probably, I, when we think of AR VR, we think of like super nerdy goggles and people strapped into a chair and plugged into screens all day. And I don't think that's going to be the actual implementation. I think it, it will be AR in one sense or another, whether it's audio, whether it's visual through glasses, or whether it's fully immersive through something like the Vision Pro um, or the Meta um, um, AR or VR options. So we don't. The, the point is that we don't know what the next step is, and um, it seems like the best and the brightest of the new crop of engineers are all developing on uh, whether it's open AI's, uh, open, uh, open AI's uh, APIs, APIs or Meta's open source version um, of their Llama model. So uh, we're in the middle of like a technological shift and we don't, there's no like clear direction as to where it's going to go. But you can make an argument that the, the software industry is not going to back Apple in, in the shift. 
Well, Apple take note of this, Mike and Jason, and and change their charge strategy or what, what will happen next. Well, in Microsoft's case, it, it took them missing out on on mobile and then pushing Steve Ballmer out. Um, so it doesn't seem like Apple's making any changes. In fact, they're kind of entrenching their position and demanding more fees uh, from all the, the applications and software engineers. So, you know, everything, everything as it appears today is, is no, they're not going to make any changes. I would add that their best case is based on, if, as long as they can make whatever the next platform is centered around the iPhone, because that's how they bring the users. And if they have the users, then it won't matter because everybody will have to build for them. If they don't have the users, then, um, you know, th then I don't think anybody's going to come running to support them. Right. You guys going to give up your iPhones and switch to whatever the Samsung product is? I, I wouldn't have said that, yes, I probably would even a year ago, but I do think whatever this platform shift, if Apple's behind it, it's a, it's a really big op opportunity for somebody. Um, you know, I think that the company that has the most to lose is probably Google in this whole platform shift, but they also have probably the best things in place to capitalize on it. Um, they have the original founders involved with running the business day to day. They have the world's data at their fingertips. Um, they can build hardware. They've started to produce some pretty decent hardware. Um, but we don't, you know, so far, I mean, earnings were, were yesterday not too encouraging um, on the, certainly on ad sales, uh, some increases when it comes to Google Cloud. But again, you know, we've yet to see an incremental move there, especially on the generative AI stuff. Well, we have time for Tesla. If you're a Tesla board member, you probably wish you hadn't accepted being on the boards. But what else do you do with your CEO? That's tough. I mean, it, it's hard to fight. It, Elon Musk has been so good for so long that objectively, as a board member for a company, as far as execution goes, it's hard to be too critical of Tesla. Um, they will probably appeal this, and I, I don't know. Maybe they win an appeal. I, I think uh, if you're a board member, you have good DNO insurance, so you're probably fine. Um, and and by being that close to Elon this this long, they're probably uh, they've done well in their careers, so <laughs> they're probably. They're probably just fine. Yeah. Give us some background on how this how this built up to the court decision. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I don't have the full backstory. Um, right. I, I know that it was a it was brought by a shareholder, but certainly, um, you know, it it's hard to imagine a shareholder that the, these types of suits get brought anytime the stock price goes down. A bunch of these. Um, these plaintiffs' attorney firms file these uh, file these class action suits, and it's sort of a blood suck on public companies. It's 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 kind of the lowest of the low, I think, when it comes to um, 
going after companies. So if stock price goes down and they sue executives, management board, whoever, um, or in this case, they feel like they're giving up too much and it's not fair. Um, you know, you, that's sort of a, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? So, it, you know, you get in front of the right judge, you get one answer, you go to an appeals, you'll get another answer. So it probably gets appealed and works its way up. And um, I, w I would bet it sticks. I, I don't know. I mean, be hard pressed to find a better CEO to run a company, I think. Right. Even if it's part time. <laughs> right. Right. Well, we made it on to page two. The Microsoft results look good, but I know Jason from talking to Mike this morning, Mike was a little cautious about the valuation and and, and whether whether Copilot was really getting enough demand. They said the adoption of, of Copilot was going really well, and, and uh, I believe they even said uh, faster than, than they expected. It was, it was the fastest adopted product they've released. But um, to Mike's point, is, is the stock price getting ahead of, of where they are and pricing all of this in? Um, we keep asking ourselves every week, you know, is, is, is the expected IRR going forward worth it to hold this position? So we, we haven't made a decision yet, but. And, and to, to put some kind of frame the situation, um, we think that the potential for Copilot is pretty large if it's a good product. Right. Um, we think that it's probably capable of moving them to $90 billion a year in free cash flow if it's a good product. Um, if you're a Fortune 500 company, you would much rather your employees use Microsoft's AI product, Copilot, than you know OpenAI's product or Anthropics or someone else, because you have an ongoing uh, enterprise software relationship with them. You've got SLAs, you've got data security issues, all of that stuff. You're going to feel good about being followed. But if the product sucks, <laughs> um, you know this is one of those things where like, is it good enough or not? And We've been seeing some reviews. I actually haven't used it myself, but the reviews of the Excel version of the product were pretty, being at least, you know, a fairly competent Excel jockey, um, I felt like, who would use this? <laughs> I, I, I did feel like the PowerPoint products were pretty good, but maybe that's just a reflection of what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Also, <laughs> I, probably a reflection of, what language models are good at and what they're not good at. Excel is largely numeric calculations, and we know that the language models are not good at that, um, whereas it's probably going to do a pretty decent job taking a Word document and putting it into a, a PowerPoint presentation and even generating pictures, but not necessarily graphs. Yeah, the question is, is it good enough? And at some point, the large language models will be good, at, good enough for certain tasks, right? And maybe... Chat GPT four is good enough for PowerPoint, but we're going to need to get to Chat GPT, you know, five or six in order to have something that's good enough for Excel. Um, right. And then you're going to see different pricing tiers for different models and and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so there's a lot more to come. Yeah. Anything else on page two? Well, the revenue recognition, um, mm -hmm. and and this isn't just 
Microsoft. They're the ones that started this trend. Um, I know, so, so when they did the deal with OpenAI, a big chunk, maybe most, I, I don't actually know the number split, a big chunk of that investment was done via Azure credits. So when we see that their Azure business is doing better quarter over quarter, year over year, well, I hope so, because <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you gave a ton of credits to a, a startup company, and they're going to burn through them. So it's a little bit concerning in that people have been trying to figure out how to do this for a long time. We know, we know that some of these large corporate venture arms highly encourage companies to switch to use their services. We also know that they can't like legally write that into the contract. This is different because they're literally giving credits in exchange for equity, which is in a way brilliant on their part. Um, in another way, you know, maybe could get out of control, um, especially with follow-on rounds and whatnot. Yeah, I've, the practice has existed for a long time. It's just evolved now to where they're the investment becomes credits that you have to spend with with them, you know, and it's a big concern because the numbers are starting to get very large. Yeah. Now that that that's a fair point. And and that's a point in software, you know, when when do you book revenue? I mean I guess <clears throat> something like Snowflake is a little better oriented that way because it based on the amount of use, right, which presumably can be documented and then build. So that would be a solider uh, estimate of your revenue. Right. And, and it kind of works like that with the Azure credits too, right, because they, they use a certain amount of compute. Um, so it, it's not that it doesn't get used. It's just that would that revenue be there? And if these companies are in a bind, meaning – year over year, quarter over quarter, they're seeing revenue go down rather than up. Do they start getting more aggressive with utilizing these credits as an investment vehicle? And are some of these AI companies desperate to take additional capital in the area of credits, even though there might not be sufficient revenues to justify the valuations? I mean, there's no question the valuations for these AI companies are just out of, it's a whole other league from venture capital. It actually makes the, the traditional venture capital community seem sort of paltry, um, like peanuts in comparison, right? You know, this, these companies that are six months old, 12 months old, raising billions and billions of dollars, it's a, it's a large amount of dollars flowing from corporates to, um, to AI, um, and, you know, it's, it's partly justified because those corporates are the ones that have the ability to scale, and, which is, again, a, an anomaly compared to what history has always told us. History has always, always told us that smaller companies are generally more efficient, more nimble, and do a better job of growing into whatever their uh, long-term valuation is. What we're seeing in the last few years is that some of these mega caps, I mean, the sky's the sky is the limit, maybe? I mean, uh, we'll see if the cash flow follows. It certainly has with a number of these names. Um, but again, we're, we're being very mindful of what this multiple free cash flow is and at what point is it too much? 
Yep. Well, and the other thing is that OpenAI is probably running at a cash loss, even with a billion and a half or two billion of revenues, because of all the compute time they have to buy in order to provide the service to people who bought it, you know, paying for it. So a good question would be, uh, is it a, you know, when, if you're, if you're a leader in, 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 in AI and language models, but it costs so much, it requires so much compute time, is it possible to get to a point where you're doing cash flow and additional revenue? So I, I think we have some data out of that. I think, I want to say it was Anthropic or some, somebody's financials were leaked and the gross margin, and this is important for software because software is generally almost 100% gross margin. It's sort of rare to see a, a, a software business with a, you know, not at least 85% gross margin. But the gross margin on this, if it, I'd have to double check which company, but I think it was Anthropic, was much lower. It was like 60 or you know, something like that. Um, and that's just, again, gross margin. That doesn't count the r and I think the R&D budget is what would capture the training of the model. This is just the inference side of the model. So yeah. we're, we're shifting into a world where software has more traditional um, cost of goods sold, something closer to what uh, the rest of the world and physical products and whatnot operate on. And before, before we bring off, we ought to see if there's any healthcare news. We, we, we spent, we haven't even gotten the chips and we have about five minutes left. Any, any, uh, any chip news or healthcare news that we ought to cover before next Wednesday? Well, one, one of our holdings, uh, Vertex, received or published their top line results in their phase three studies for the non opioid pain medication. Um, the results were pretty much what I expected, and they're positive. So they, they met their primary endpoint of showing statistically significant pain reduction. Uh, they didn't meet their other primary endpoint of being better than opioids. I personally was not expecting that. Um, in one case, in soft tissue pain, they were just as good as opioids. And then in hard tissue pain, they were slightly less effective. Um, so clearly the drug's not better than an opioid. Um, but there's this huge gap in the market where there's no other acute pain treatment other than an opioid. So if we have something that's as good or almost or as Tylenol, good, <laughs> right, right, that's it's quite a gap between what what, what well, yeah. we prescribed, right. Well, so Tylenol they would say is not is not fit for acute pain, um, but if there's something nearly as effective or or all you know or as effective in in some cases in soft tissue pain, you're going to prescribe that versus the addictive opioids, and maybe only the most severe cases where you're not not react not having a, a pain reduction with VX548 then you'll then be prescribed an opioid um, we see things like congress passing the no pain act um, there's talks of a follow on uh, follow on bill to that um, and then additionally steering Medicare reimbursements towards non-opioid pain treatments. And, and from what Vertex said in a, in a press conference was 
they talk to the payers and the payers are really excited about this because they don't want to prescribe someone opioids and then have them be addicted and then have follow on complications or addiction issues that they then have to pay to treat as well. So if, if there's a non-opioid treatment, even though it costs more, it might be cost effective to prescribe that um, without, without even taking into account the no pain act, which, which that bill will, um, subsidize hospitals to prescribe the the patented brand label drug versus the generic opioid so they'll they'll still be reimbursed that that full amount what jason what about side effects any any side effects for the protection medicine yeah great question um we know opioids have a lot of side effects beyond addiction there's nausea nausea is a, a huge problem with that um, in the, in the, across the phase three studies, they saw a lower incidence of adverse events or side effects, um, with the study drug than with placebo. So the safety and side effect profile of this drug is, is very good. And, the, and that was one of the most encouraging things out of the, out of the studies. And how long before, uh, the FDA permits them to, to uh, offer this medicine to the public? Yeah, so the, it's going to take Vertex a few months to put together their new drug application package and, and then submit that to the FDA. They've committed to getting that submitted um, by mid-year. And then the FDA has granted this fast-track approval status. So once that's submitted, six months from then, the FDA will make their decision. So we're kind of looking at a timeline where the approval is probably going to come right at the end of, of this year. Potential approval, I should say. <laughs> Got about one minute left. Any other newsworthy items and help their chips? Well, in the chip world, we had Intel and AMD, both uh, earnings. The Probably the, the takeaway is that AMD continues to eat Intel's lunch in the data center. But AMD is not doing that great in the data center yet either. Um, there you see, for example, Amazon seems to have committed to sticking to their own chips plus NVIDIA's chips. Um, for, NVIDIA, or for AMD, everything's riding on this MI300 chip, and they think that they're going to have somewhere between three and six months of process leadership or chip leadership over NVIDIA. Um, and they have commitments from Microsoft and Meta for fairly large deployments there. So the question is, is how, um, how does that go? And are they, able, you know, when, when NVIDIA releases a better chip, will everybody switch back to the NVIDIA chip? Right. Yeah. I, I would add that, the, the data center market share split between Intel and AMD and CPUs, Intel used to have in the, 90, in the 90s. Um, now it's more like a 60-40 split with, with Intel having 60%. Um, but longer term, I think the, the story is that data center spend is shifting from CPUs to GPUs, and the market's potentially moving away from x86 chip architectures. Um, I know that's a little in the weeds, but... Um, the, the Amazon chips that they're designing in-house are on ARM and not x86.
Good. Everyone have a good week. Stay well, stay healthy. For us, natural gas producers, root for a little cold weather. And uh, we'll talk next week. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.